everyone and welcome to another episode of the Pre-Raphaelite Society podcast. I'm very excited today to be joined by a friend, uh, Sarah Hardy, who is the director of the De Morgan Foundation. She's also the curator of the De Morgan Foundation, here to talk all things Evelyn and William De Morgan. Hello, Sarah. Hi, Hannah. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. Nice oh, to no, be thank- here. Thanks so much for coming on. Um, so first of all, yeah, thank you so much. Sarah is actually in America at the moment, so it is very early in the morning that she is um, helping me record this podcast. So thank you so much for doing it's okay. that. okay. I'm just making the most of uh, the jet lag and getting up at four in the morning, so <laughs> no need to thank me for that. That's fine. <laughs> no, very much appreciate it. And um, yeah, so first of all, for any of our listeners that might not know, could you tell us a bit about who William and Evelyn de Morgan were and also a bit about the de Morgan Foundation itself? Yeah, I'd be happy to. Thank you. Um, So William and Evelyn de Morgan, as you might expect from the nature of the podcast, were Victorian artists who were really closely associated with the pre-Raphaelite movement. Um, They met in about 1883, supposedly at a fancy dress party, um, when Evelyn said that she was dressed as a tube of rose madder paint, and William said that he was even madder. And the story goes that that was the point that um, they sort of met and, and fell in love. Uh, by that time, Hannah, they'd already kind of really both established themselves as successful artists, um, Evelyn as a, a painter, fine art painter, and William as a ceramicist. He had quite successful, uh, at that point, tile business um, when uh, when the two of them met. And according to everyone who knew them, it really was just this sort of coming together of kindred spirits and, and really matched minds in terms of um, them both being very artistic uh, sort of very liberal outlook. They both were big supporters of the women's suffrage movement, uh, for example, and, and very pacifist in their um, outlook towards uh, the First World War when that eventually came. Um, so, yeah, I always, uh, you mentioned them in America. We're working on a joint exhibition, a big retrospective of both of their artworks at the moment, and we're referring to the De Morgans as a Victorian power couple. Um, so I think that just Amazing. about uh, sums it up. Yeah, incredible. And could you tell us a bit more about um, the foundation itself and kind of how it came to be and what kind of pieces you have in the collection? Yeah, sorry, you did ask me to do that. And then I... uh... I didn't. So yes, uh, (laughs) the Morgan Foundation is quite unique in that it is a charity with an art collection. So we don't actually have a museum of our own. And that's very much to do with how it was originally set up. So Evelyn Pickering's younger sister, someone called Wilhelmina Sterling, she actually set up the foundation by collecting as much De Morgan artwork as she could do, um, pretty much from the 1920s to her death in the 1960s. And you've got to remember, Victorian art was really unfashionable then. So what would happen a lot of the time is she'd hear about people pulling William De Morgan tiles out of their fireplaces and out of their homes, and she'd jump in her car with her butler and get him to drive her to this skip and uh, take the tiles back home with her so that she could add them to her collection and people would donate a lot to her and she also bought a lot at auction and so by the time she passed away in the 1960s she had a collection of about 70 oil paintings by Evelyn de Morgan over 800 um, drawings and sketches by both of the artists 
and a huge number we've got about a thousand individual pieces of ceramic from tiles through to vases and plates uh, by William de Morgan so yeah just one or two bits um, in the collection <laughs> today and because we don't have property she didn't leave us any property we work in partnership with a number of museums and galleries uh, to display the collection today so our sort of very long-term partnerships are with Cannon Hall in Barnsley, with Whittick Manor, a National Trust property in Wolverhampton, and the Watts Gallery, and the home of the artist G.F. Watts, which is in uh, near Guildford, in a, town, a village called Compton. Um, and then as well as that, we have a number of touring exhibitions so that we can share the collection with even more people and get even more people sort of enthused about this beautiful artwork. And um, yeah, one of those is uh, in America. So it's been to the Delaware Art Museum and it's now about to open at the Crocker Art Museum in Sacramento in California. And so that's why I'm here. Amazing. So jet setting sort of international foundation and collection. Incredible. Thank you so much, Sarah. And it's wonderful, I think, that people sort of around the country and around the world are sort of able to see this really brilliant collection of these two artists. And just as an FRI for listeners as well, I had the great privilege to work with Sarah um, uh, when I worked at Whittick Manor to co-curate this, the exhibition actually is still there, of Look Beneath the Luster to look at combining William and Evelyn de Morgan's work with the Manders and putting it in the context of Whittick Manor in their collection and um, so it's really wonderful how um, the De Morgan Foundation and Sarah works with the different places that she mentioned um, to really create unique kind of bespoke exhibitions that speak to the places um, within, within which um, these exhibitions sit and then also to very particular themes um, within the collections and within the De Morgan's work so it's just really fascinating all the sort of different exhibitions and different ideas that come out um, uh, from these works and these spaces and also Sarah I wanted to mention as well that it's very much um, a collection that grows um, and I know you recently had a really kind of exciting acquisition um, I wonder if you could just briefly talk about that as well. Yeah absolutely we were so delighted to be able to um, to make this acquisition. Uh, the the story I'll tell from my perspective because really that's that's the only one I know. Um, I was working one day and got a call from Sotheby's to say we've had uh, a, a really unusual um, Evelyn de Morgan picture that's that's come to us and um, we thought we'd give you a bit of advance notice that it's going to auction in two weeks well that's not really very good advance notice for any auction houses no. listening and um, we, we could do with a little bit longer to get the sort of money together we need to have, acquire paintings but anyway I dropped everything and went to Sotheby's in London and was able to view the picture and it just took my breath away Hannah it's mm. um, a, a head and shoulders portrait of a young eight-year-old child looking directly out of the canvas almost through the viewer her eyes sort of transcend reality really into something else it's quite a a profound stance for such a young child to mm. be making um and she's dressed in a little you can see just the top of her smock coat and and lace collar that she's wearing with this um the very thick blonde hair in a in a bob and then just nothing behind her at all just a blank background and it's a quite a, a modest size picture it's 50 by 50 centimetres um so yeah really definitely something you can think of as being quite uh domestic and that you could see having in your home um and I knew from the inscription on the painting just written very small in, in gold lettering at the top of the painting um that it is of someone called Winifred Bulwer and it was painted in 1880 
and we knew that Winifred Bulwer was part of Evelyn de Morgan's maternal extended family, uh, so a young cousin of the artist, and it's it, it represented one of only seven portraits we know that she ever made, uh, and it's it's just a completely stunning and beautiful painting, and um, it, it really gives us a lot of insight and understanding into her artistic ambitions. I think if she had wanted to make a lot of money from painting, she would have been more than qualified to be a portrait artist, but instead decided to focus on the mythological and history paintings that we know her much better for. Um, and I think probably her gender had a lot to do with that. She wanted to push away from that domestic uh, space and, and really break through into the male-dominated kind of easel painting and history painting um, that she is more closely associated with today. Um, but this, I saw this tiny picture at Sotheby's with this these big eyes of this young girl, and I looked at her and I said, "I'm going to, I'm going to take you home." And the only way we can do that at the foundation, like so many museums and galleries, is uh, through support. Um, so I immediately almost ran home and rang uh, around some, some uh, really you know, generous um, funders who I knew gave money for acquisitions. And we were able to get the money together with the help of uh, Art Fund and the V&A Purchase Grants, which is funded by Arts Council England. And we was so generously supported by them that we we're actually able to pull the painting from the auction the day before um and so we wow. absolutely secured it for everybody to go and see rather than have that horrible risk of someone putting in a higher bid than ours yes. um so it's now very happily on display uh, i kept my promise to winifred and she's up at cannon hall um surrounded by lots of information about the rest of her family who was also uh evelyn de morgan's family um and lots of uh scrapbooks as well uh showing her um as a child and a young adult playing in the grounds of cannon hall and going on holidays with the family um so we've been able to sort of really tell everybody a lot about her story, about sort of how the family lived at Cannon Hall um, back in the 18, late 1800s, and of course about Evelyn de Morgan and her artistic prowess as well. So yeah, thank you for mentioning that. It's um, Please go and look it up, everybody. It's such a beautiful picture. And if you are near Cannon Hall in Barnsley, it's definitely worth a visit. Oh, just congratulations on that, Sarah. It's just so incredible that you've managed to secure it for the foundation. Just, yeah, it's that effort, just... And I've not seen it in person yet, but seeing the from the pictures to quote Ken from Barbie, just sublime. Like it just looks completely sublime, just beautiful. So yeah, I'm just so glad of that. And like you say, something quite different. Um, considering she created created so few portraits, it's incredible to have it in the collection. Um, you mentioned also, or you touched on some of the themes in Evelyn de Morgan's work um, around kind of feminism and pacifism. And also you mentioned um, about how both her and William de Morgan were very much kind of involved in that activism and those movements. I wondered if you could just touch a bit more for um, our listeners um, on the kind of themes and subject matter in both of their works. Yeah, big topic, that one. Uh, Sorry, I knew it was very... <laughs> Sorry, I know it's a very big open-ended question. <laughs> 
I mean, you're right, Hannah. They are always on what I and I'm sure lots of people think is the right side of history um, mm. with their views and their outlooks. We'll start with William. He was a bit older than Evelyn. He was born in 1839. Um, but the parents he was born to themselves were particularly uh, you know, liberally, liberally minded. His father was a professor of mathematics at University College London. Um, and so he grew up in an academic household on Gower Street, which was accommodation provided by the university university for the family um, and his mother was Sophia Friend the daughter of a mathematician so guess how his parents met um, and she was friends with Elizabeth Fry and a big social reform campaigner she sort of really used her position as a middle-class woman um, to be very philanthropic and to really support causes that she felt were important and we can count amongst those um, things like uh, anti-vivisection she was against uh, animal testing um, uh, she was an abolitionist and campaigned for the end of the slave trade. She also wrote a lot about prison reforms and the need to treat prisoners more humanely and um, uh, women's rights as well. So she helped establish the first teaching college for women and even twisted her husband's arm to go and um, deliver mathematics lectures there. So uh, yeah, a really forward thinking woman, quite a set apart from her own generation really and I think she did instill in her children um, many of these uh, sort of wonderful attitudes um, for the time and uh, and therefore it was in um, Evelyn that, that William found a, a true soulmate I think uh, as a young woman from the middle classes she was very aware of her own wealth um, and and sort of tried to use that for good, I think, really, throughout her career. She gave paintings um, to art galleries for the edification of ordinary people, which was a big Victorian attitude. Um, she also held exhibitions and gave all the money from the proceeds of that to charity. Uh, so she had an exhibition in 1916 and wrote uh, collected money for uh, the British Red Cross whilst the First World War was on. Um, and both of them really did kind of campaign for the suffrage movement. Uh, Evelyn was one of the first signatories on the Declaration in Favour of Women's Suffrage, which she first signed in 1889. Um, and then William really overtook her in <laughs> public activism. And after his pottery business had closed in 1905, he really did set his sights on campaigning very publicly for women's suffrage. He wrote in um, an, a, you know, a huge number of publications. He wrote letters to MPs and uh, to friends that he had and family members who were suffragettes um always in support of them and um yeah he very sadly died in 19, uh, 1917 sorry so he never lived to see the representation of the people act which is um is, is very sad uh but Evelyn did she lived till 1919 so she would have been able to see her sort of life's ambition come together and vote for the first time which is a lovely thought mm. Yeah, and I always do love the kind of the power and the kind of force in a lot of um, Evelyn de Morgan's kind of female figures. I always just think it's really interesting the way that she sort of depicts women in her artworks. And I always kind of relate it back to sort of her views, both as herself as an artist and then also kind of her ideas of women in society, what she kind of how she wants to portray them. Um, going back to... Uh, as you are in America at the moment. I also wanted to ask about this kind of international links and um, kind of working with international galleries and how um, the themes you're kind of drawing out as well in America that might be slightly different or how you're kind of approaching it, um, yeah, in American spaces that might be different to museums in the UK. 
Yeah, it's a great question. Um, so the first venue that this exhibition went to was Delaware Art Museum, and they have the biggest collection of pre-Raphaelite painting in America, certainly in America. I was going to say outside of the UK. I'll check if that's true, but certainly the biggest pre-Raphaelite collection in America, which was put together by someone called Samuel Bancroft, who was a local mm. industrialist, so a story we're very familiar with in the UK. Um, but he was of a generation where he could visit uh, England and sort of met some of these artists and second generation artists and became very interested in their artwork and their life stories and brought this collection um, back to America with him and, and very generously donated it to his local museum, which just so happens to be Delaware. Um, and so that was, it was brilliant working with them because they knew what their local audiences would already know about the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood and the arts and crafts movement and how we could mm. best situate the De Morgans within that but we also had to bear in mind this you know these were going to be art victorian artists that people had never heard of before um and so we had to come up with a hook that really kind of persuaded people that they should be interested in this and that really there was a, a lot to care about um and so it was the first time really hannah that i've been able to put together a show that absolutely linked the de morgans and the title of the exhibition is a marriage of arts and crafts um so playing on the arts and crafts movement but also the fact that this is a married couple and that's why we've kind of subtitled it uh sort of between ourselves really but as a victorian power couple um we mm. really wanted to have something contemporary in there that people could perhaps relate to and i think just being able to show off the range and breadth of both artists achievements um you know they are impressive and, and they sound impressive when you do that but the real focus of the show is their relationship together and what they're shared values were almost outside of the art they were making um but yeah that's been a really a really good way of uh, introducing them to this new audience for the first time and I've got so much out of it as well um I think usually I'll do a show about either or of them mm. so it'll be an evening show or a William show or there'll be a wider theme that both of their art relates to but by looking very closely at their relationship I've been able to do things like really consider the fact they both used uh, the peacock feather emblem in their artwork mm. and think about the individual artists that both of them knew who were working in the aesthetic um, style, which was to use the peacock feather as a, a motif of you know, sort of this grandeur and decadence. Mm -hmm. But also it's a symbol of, um, of infinity and uh, very closely related to spiritualism. Um, and that's been really interesting to look a bit more at William through the lens of his spiritualist beliefs. I think because Evelyn's pictures are such uh, amazing spiritualist uh, motifs with all of the angels that she puts into them and this you know the rainbow mists that represent the movement of the soul from earth to the afterlife whereas that we kind of forget that you know that it was with William that she practiced automatic writing his mother mm. as well as mm -hmm. her wonderful accolades I mentioned before had been a spiritualist medium and uh, spent six years living with a psychic in her home so that she could write down what she what the psychic got up to and she published that in 1863 in a huge volume called From Matter to Spirit which is uh, was very highly regarded as a spiritualist text um, and so William was I think uh, in whether they believed it or not I, I can't say but he was certainly practicing the automatic writing with his wife Evelyn and I think was very interested in the possibilities um, of the existence of the human soul beyond 
mortal life. Um, and so looking at all the peacocks that he put into his artwork and actually thinking, maybe they're not just decorative, maybe there's something else in there. Um, and, and thinking about him a bit more uh, alongside those themes that we usually attach to the pictures has been quite uh, quite interesting from the show. Um, and then, as I mentioned, it's uh, we were very happy to get two venues for the exhibition, one on the East Coast and one on the West Coast. So I'm now in California in the state capital of Sacramento, working with the Crocker Art Museum, which has an amazing collection of ceramics um, from uh, the ancient right through to the contemporary. So that's uh, a bit more how we pinned the exhibition over here is to, is to fit the ceramics in with the chronology of their usual collection that their visitors know about, and then pull out some of the uh, the interesting themes about the De Morgan's own social and political views um, that sort of so mm. clearly align with lots of things that are still being discussed today. Amazing. It is really striking, I think, and it is such a strength of the De Morgan Foundation's collection when you show William and Evelyn's artworks um, together like I found this really striking at Whittock when you're hanging when we were hanging the paintings and then you have opposite the tile wall of William de Morgan's tiles and you really get a sense of the um, like you say not only the themes but the colours and the motifs and the kind of the way that they seem to be that partnership and that inspiration but really seeing how across different mediums um, the, the definite interplay of ideas and um styles so yeah I just think it's a really 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 interesting talking of that actually one of the things I love that we did have one in look beneath the luster but I know you um needed it for very rightly so for the amazing exhibition that you have at Leighton House at the moment is a beautiful I love the gold drawings that you have of Evelyn de Morgan um that we had one in there and and there's an amazing exhibition that you've curated, uh, which is at Leighton House till October, I believe, of 14 drawings, these beautiful gold drawings that Evelyn did. So I just wondered, Sarah, if you could talk to us a bit about that. Yeah, of course. Yeah, I know exactly which drawing you're referring to, Hannah. It's um, a <laughs> uh, dark uh, background, so this wonderful, uh, sort of, it's hard to describe, isn't it? It's almost like a very dark sepia grey mm. um, paper emblazoned mm. with two standing angels underneath mm. this semicircular choir of, of cherubs um, mm. announcing the birth of Christ to the shepherds. And they will mm. step out of the very dark background because they are illustrated in this uh, amazing glittering gold um, mm. pigment. Uh, mm. And it, it's it's such a fabulous artwork. And I was mm. very sorry to take it away from Wittick. From <laughs> no, it's very, it's very understandable. It's very understandable. But, <laughs> but I have to, yeah, um, because I finally have had the opportunity to curate a very modest in size, uh, but not an ambition exhibition of uh, these gold drawings made by Evelyn de Morgan. Um, they they stand alone. I don't. It doesn't matter how many pre-Raphaelite exhibitions you have been to, um, you won't have seen anything like this uh, before. I can absolutely guarantee that they are mm. just such a Definitely. rare and unique beauty um, that they they really do have to be seen to be, be believed. And having so many of them together at once is uh, it's quite an astonishing space to step into. Um, really. Mm. Yeah. So the idea for this exhibition came to me a very long time ago when I first took over um, at, at, the, at the foundation and um, was sort of treating myself one day to getting 
to know the collection a little bit better. And I opened some of our many boxes of drawings in the archive. And sadly, one of them was um, snapped is really the only word to describe it uh, because the paper's so brittle, but snapped in half and thought, gosh, you know, what's happened to this? And and then I looked at it and I thought, what on earth is that? And it was, again, this dark brown paper, very brittle paper that was had the, these figures on it that were um, finished in, in this bright gold pigment and I just thought well, I've never seen anything like that before I wonder if we've got any more <laughs> so I had a bit of a dig uh, and found that actually the found I'm going to lose count of the numbers now the foundation's got about 13 of them mm-hmm. um, and uh, then I started sort of doing a bit of wider research and I found a number of others in other collections I think the number's up to either 18 or 19 um, now of, of these drawings that uh, that De Morgan was making. Um, mm-hmm. And so after a, a good number of years of researching them, I found out that she was making these between at least 1884 and 1902. Not all of them are dated. Um, they're all uh, uniform in the fact that they use a, a very dark paper and they have a composition drawn on them in uh, sort of charcoal and uh, a yellow or white chalk sometimes with a coloured chalk as well, a blue or a red for contrast, but then this wonderful gold um, that really does just shine. It sort of leaps from the page towards you. Um, Out of all of the compositions, uh, I think I'm writing saying that nearly all of them correspond directly to a composition that she was making for an oil painting. Um, but mm-hmm. it seems from the dates of them, some uh, precede the painting and some succeed the painting. So she was making the gold drawings around the compositions. They weren't part of the process to the oil painting being the final mm. big finale. So that was quite an interesting way of looking at them is that she understood these to be artworks in their own right. And it kind of helped to demolish the hierarchy a little bit that um, obviously easel paintings at the top and uh, decorative arts is down at the bottom, which of course is what, her husband was trying to do through his work with the arts and crafts movement and William Morris. So I think maybe that's why she was experimental and um, kind of using her position as an artist to really give a step up to some of the other, uh, the other lesser arts as William Morris would have called them. Um, and then I just really was interested in the material itself, you know, like what on earth was this? If it had been readily available, surely more people would have used it because it's so beautiful. Um, and thanks to um, Sally at Hamilton Kerr Institute, who had done a lot of work on the Robesons archive, um, I was able to go and look at the accounts that Evelyn had with uh, Charles Robeson, who was an artist colourman. So he supplied her with lots of her art materials. And within what she was buying from him in um, the 1880s uh, and 90s were uh, listings for a cake of gold. So I did a little bit of research into what Robeson was selling and um, he was selling these dry pellets of pigments that people could put into a watercolour case, making them portable, meaning that people could go and paint outside for the first time. So part of quite revolutionary thinking about mm. what an artist is and what studio practice should be. Um, but there's no way she could have painted just with water onto the dark paper in the gold because it would have it would have absorbed too much. It wouldn't have been thick enough. So we are pretty sure that she was grinding the pigment down, mixing it with something to bind it, like a gum arabic, maybe some oil, and then painting it onto um, the paper. And it seems that she then treated the paper as well with a fixative, which is what has since made it um, so very brittle. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we can see from that, you know, she really was 
an artist who was interested in process and technique as much as she was uh, kind of the imagery um, and the, the symbolism in her paintings. And for me, it was that that made it so important to put this exhibition into the public sphere. Uh, lots of people talk about um, Evelyn and spiritualism. That's always going to happen because it's interesting. Uh, people find it, I think, fascinating that she practiced automatic writing. But I thought, let's move away from that for a second and let's drop the discussion of her gender and her personal life and her interests and let's really focus on her as an artist. And it's it's been it's been amazing to be able to do that and to kind of pinpoint her as someone who was professional and was ambitious and was incredibly talented and involved in what she was making um mm. and and had that light shone on her studio practice um so yeah the, the exhibition itself kind of brings together um what we could get our hands on basically of the gold drawings there are some in private collections and there's one at the art institute in chicago and there's also one in the um De morgan exhibition at the crocker that we obviously have to exclude uh, but we have been able to include 11 gold drawings and three preparatory studies for one of the compositions in there in um this like i say very modest in size but not in ambition uh, exhibition which is at later house in London and that's on until the 1st of October. No it's incredibly the way you've curated the space because it's this beautiful kind of dark grey on the wall and it feels like a jewellery box and the gold drawings really do shine in there it's a really intimate I'm not I'm an atheist I'm not religious in any way but it does feel like uh, yeah you sort of should be worshipping at the altar of Evelyn de Morgan in there it's incredible so yeah thank you and um, do we know, is there much evidence, Sarah, that she exhibited these gold drawings in her lifetime? Do we know much about that? Yeah, she absolutely did. Um, so in 1889, she had exhibited them at the Fine Arts Society and they were very well received by critics. Um, we've located three independent um, reviews of that exhibition that single out the gold drawings as um I'll paraphrase, having the wow factor, you know, the journalists mm. that talked about them really do say that these are quite unique and, and mesmerising artworks. Mm. Um, so, yeah, this I think it's possibly the first time they've been exhibited since 1889, certainly so many of them together. Uh, so, like I say, a, a really rare opportunity um, to see to see these fascinating artworks and mm. learn a bit more about Morgan's practice. Yeah, and were there many other artists um, creating sort of similar gold drawings that we know of at the time? So this is the thing about them, Hannah, there just really isn't. Um, and mm. I've now had people in that exhibition with me, like Jan Marsh, Rupert Mars, and I've asked them, you know, have you seen anything like this before? Because I can't find anyone mm. else who was doing it. And the answer just always comes back as a no, except for Burne Jones, um, which is a... A bit of a shame for me uh, because he was making them first. He'd first made gold drawings on dark paper in the 1860s and then in the 1890s he kind of expanded and, and made a couple more. Um, mm. I'll just say it, his aunt is good. <laughs> <laughs> he wasn't they... very nice about Evelyn Hannah so I'm not going to be very nice about him. No that's fine, that's fair enough. Were they ever, were they ever exhibited together or did he maybe not dare exhibit his with hers? <laughs> um, he he did exhibit his as well, but he, there was a big exhibition of his artwork, and I can't remember where now, in 1896 or seven, mm. um, so probably around the time of 
that's about around the time he died isn't it so mm. uh, there was sort of a big exhibition then and he um he included the later gold drawings uh in that exhibition um mm. from what i understand about those gold drawings after listening to a wonderful uh lecture about them at the burn jones conference and by samantha tam who'd mm. been researching them and uh she said he was very interested in the the process of dyeing the paper a very dark indigo so lots of his almost look purpley uh, yes. when you see them um because he was really interested in that process but i think we're not quite sure what gold he was using although i would you know bet a lot of money on it being the same as the process mm. that uh that Evelyn was using but it seems that he was using them as not preparatory drawings but as sort of sketches um kind of experimental pieces none of his are as uh kind of ambitious in their composition as De Morgan's are and I started with the description of Glory and Excelsis mm. the drawing um that is uh one of the you know the the a highlight of the Leighton House exhibition as it was when it was at Whittock uh, mm. but the the number of figures in that and the the detail in it uh, far exceeds any of the gold drawings that Burne Jones made um, mm. and I think the reason for that is it was an incredibly hard medium to use uh, one of um, so there was another Another time that they were exhibited was at Leighton House. Uh, previously in 1919, a couple of them went on display when Evelyn's friend, uh, the artist Emily Ross Russell Barrington, who was sort of mm. had got Leighton House uh, after his death and made it into a, a museum and gallery. She had a memorial exhibition to um, Evelyn, and she included one of her gold drawings in that exhibition, and she wrote about it that it was so difficult because um and again to paraphrase something like once a stroke had been made no erasures could ever be made so a lot like egg tempera painting once that once the pigment hits the paper it's like a permanent marker it's there forever mm. uh, and so with it being such a difficult wow. medium to master I think maybe that's why not everybody did it <laughs> Yeah, I'm just waiting one day for some amazing sort of tapestries that Evelyn and William de Morgan to be discovered because it's just the range of kind of mediums and techniques that they both were working on. It just kind of boggles the mind how expert, you know, the experts they became in so many different uh, styles, which seem incredibly difficult to master. So thank you for that. We've that got really some embroideries in the collection, Hannah. <laughs> Have you? Oh, I can't. <laughs> Um, they were designed by William and Evelyn for a very elderly, elderly, sorry, Mrs. Pickering, who was Evelyn's mm. mother. And apparently they drew out the patterns and she embroidered them. Um, so, yeah, we've got three embroidered pelmets. If anyone ever wants to come and see those, I don't really know what to do with them. So they're just in our archive. <laughs> Amazing. I mean, yeah, I should have just guessed. Wow. Cool. I, I have to have yeah. a look. Are there images of them online? Can I see these pelmets? <laughs> uh, there aren't, actually, um, because of the way that they're, they were stored by textile conservator enrolled and uh, textiles isn't my um, area so I've, ah. I've been brave enough to unroll them so it would take a, a sort of a project if anybody wants one to come and have a look at them but they weren't actually embroidered by William and Evelyn I, I don't think I'm pretty sure they were done by Evelyn's mother but they helped her and made the designs for them. Amazing oh thank you it's <laughs> incredible Yes. And um, just before we uh, wrap up, thank you, Sarah, I could talk to you for hours and hours, but I do want you to get yes, back same. and hopefully have some more <laughs> sleep and <laughs> not keep you all. No, I'll just have more coffee. I'm all right. <laughs> 
I have just realised that I was meant to be going into Exeter to visit your incredible Sublime Symmetry exhibition of William de Morgan's work that I have not seen yet. And it is finishing tomorrow, so I will miss it in Exeter, but I will have to catch it where it is next. Um, and I, you mentioned about there was some something exciting you want to mention about it. So you have the floor, Sarah. <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, hopefully it's an exhibition that a lot of people listening will um, will know because it's been mm. such a, a brilliant success for the De Morgan Foundation. I actually envisaged this exhibition um, when I was a volunteer with the foundation back in 2015, which is terrifying. Um, and it started off as a, a funded project and it went to five venues across the UK. Um, and then it, it was, people loved it so much that we kept... We kept it going. We kept touring it. And I honestly thought that Exeter as venue eight would be um, the last one of this. And I was all, you know, very ready to take another look at the ceramics and maybe come up with a different exhibition concept for them rather than uh, the mathematics that are in the ceramics, which is what Sublime Symmetry focuses on. It's um, I mentioned before, William's father had been a mathematician and William was very interested in science, technology, mathematics. And um, we were able to look at the, the geometry in his designs in Sublime Symmetry, which I think made it popular with museums because it links to the Islamic art he was so interested in. And also very handily, the key stage two curriculum. Um, but yeah, Exeter's not going to be the last venue, Hannah. I'm absolutely delighted to tell everybody that in early 2024, dates TBC, so do look out on De Morgan uh, social media and website. Please give us a follow. Um, it will be going to Blackwall in the Lake District. Oh, I love Blackwell. Blackwell. I beg your pardon. I do that all the time. No, no. Oh, how exciting. The Arts and Crafts House. Oh, that's amazing, yeah. Sarah. Oh, wonderful. I have another chance to visit it and go to Blackwell. Amazing. Oh, <laughs> Even how it's just down the road from where you I are know. now, Exeter this time. I know. Uh, you can trek across the country and um and yeah come up and see it at Blackwell so uh, I'm absolutely delighted that I'm uh, in the very early stages of working um with Blackwell to uh to decide which objects exactly will go in it's been a bit different at every venue exactly mm. which uh, ceramic objects they'll take and um and sort of yeah get that ready to go to go up there in uh, in the early new year yeah, that is incredible as well. An idea you had in 2015, you know, eight years later, still going incredibly strong into eight venues. That really just shows the popularity, longevity and, you know, relevance and resonance. That's incredible, Sarah. Oh, wow. Thank yeah, you it's been so much. Yeah, to me more than anybody else, I think, that um, one exhibition would, would be so well loved by people. But uh, here we are. So, no, we're very happy to um, to have it at a, oh. a ninth venue. It's very exciting. <laughs> now you're just a superstar really you are like incredible you're in the right place in California with all the other stars <laughs> <laughs> no that's just well, I'm always just you. <laughs> oh, honestly I'm always so just excited to hear what you're working on and the De Morgan Foundation are very lucky to have you like it's just incredible everything that's happening and I'm always just so excited to see on the website what's happening next so yeah, it's just incredible. So thank you so much, Sarah, for your time today. Unless there's anything else you wanted to mention that I've missed. Oh, gosh, I think we've had quite the uh, whistle-stop tour, haven't we, right from William's birth in 1839 all the way up to uh, <laughs> what's going on in 2024. So, um, no, I'm very happy for people to to get in touch and, and sort of 
if they've got any questions and like I say, if you want to find out more, we're on uh, Instagram at De Morgan Foundation on Twitter or X as it's now known as at De Morgan F. And you can find us on Facebook as well by searching for De Morgan Foundation um, in all of those places and on our website, which is just www.demorgan.org.uk. Um, you can find links to sign up to our newsletter uh, so people can keep in touch that way as well. Yeah, and you can always volunteer for the society, which is always exciting, and donate as well for all their exciting future projects and future acquisitions. They, yeah, I'm sure there are more, um, maybe more kind of uh, textiles out there that have De Morgan's name on it, maybe <laughs> that we can discover. Um, so yeah, thank you so much, Sarah, for today. This has been really enlightening and exciting, and I look forward to speaking to you again soon. Thank you, everybody, yeah, for listening. Anytime, anytime. It's been lovely to be on and uh, and to be part of the podcast. Thank you. Ah, oh, thank you so much, Sarah. And yeah, thank you to everybody listening. This has been another episode of the Prefolite Society podcast with Hannah and Sarah. So thank you. Bye. Mm-hmm.